Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. It's been just about a year now since our first podcast went to air. And here in the Melbourne History Workshop, we're actually really thrilled with the response that we've received from listeners who have been enjoying our stories about Melbourne's history, heritage and culture. And I have to say that while we expected to reach thousands of listeners in Melbourne and perhaps across Australia, we're really delighted that we have growing audience hotspots in North America, New Zealand, Germany and the UK, as well as Malaysia and Japan. Your feedback is telling us that you like the mixed format as well as the broad content of our show. Again, if you've got further thoughts or ideas, do drop us a line and we'd really like to hear from you. You can find our email contact on the website at mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. This time around, Helen pops in on Wattle Park for its centenary in Melbourne A to Z. I'll have a chat to author David Sornig about his new book, Blue Lake, Finding Dudley Flats and the West Melbourne Swamp, and we'll leave you in anticipation of the first call of the cicada that heralds the coming of Melbourne's summer. Welcome to this segment on My Marvellous Melbourne, Places A to Z, W, or perhaps places you've always wondered about at the terminus of train and tram lines. For we're off to Wattle Park, which, as it happens, is intimately connected with Melbourne's tramways. You've seen the number 70 tram rattling down Flinders Street? Hop on and go the distance. You'll end up where Riversdale and Elgar Roads meet, the boundary of several local councils and a great big public park full of wattle trees. I'm Helen Morgan, an archivist and historian, but today just someone who grew up in Burwood with Wattle Park on her doorstep, off to meet up with Frank, one of the longest-serving and oldest members of the Friends of Wattle Park. The Friends Group was formed in 1992 and hold working bees, undertake plant propagation, litter removal, weeding and seed collection. The park itself came into being as a managed public space in 1917 when it was purchased by the Hawthorne Tramways Trust. The land that formed the park had been farmland and was owned by Eliza Welch of Ball and Welch fame. And before then, the land that formed the park had been the land of the Wurundjeri people. Back in the days of the First World War, an enterprising local member of the Burwood Progress Association suggested, As we consider a good number of people will travel this line for sake of the trip, it would be a further inducement if there was something in the shape of a park to make it still more attractive at the end of the journey. The park would attract people to visit and picnic in, and in the process, raise revenue for the Tramways Trust. For a long time, the park was under the control of the Melbourne Tramways Board, and the Melbourne Tramways Band still plays there on a regular basis. I asked Frank how he first came to visit Waddle Park, to tell me how he experienced the park and why he became involved with the Friends. I was employed as a page boy at Australia's most famous hotel, Mendy's Hotel, in the year of 1942. During that time I had the pleasure of 
lighting fires, cleaning out fires and restoring a little bit of heat in some of the more upmarket suites. It was during, on one of these occasions, I remember it was a Saturday afternoon and I had just completed setting up the fire for Miss Ball, which I was to set, set a light later. When she quietly said to me, and what do you do of a Sunday, Frank? And I said, Miss Ball, I go to Sunday school. And I said, tomorrow I am going after Sunday school to Wattle Park. She said, that's a lovely park. And uh, she said to me that as a young person, she enjoyed time in the park herself. Also at this time, there was a young lady employed at Menji's as a junior stenographer. I met her on my first occasion at Wattle Park, a day I will never forget. Walking through the park and inside at the door of the park and taking in the landscape was absolutely amazing. It was just a mass of green. And approaching the chalet to the right on a smaller road, they'd built a bandstand. And adjacent to this, of course, was two entries. One into the chalet was of main events, what have you, afternoon teas and weddings, dance nights, etc. And the other one led to the kiosk. Road, more or less in those days, the country track was Elga Road. And on crossing the main oval, there was this beautiful ornamental war memorial dedicated to this dear lady who lost her son at Gallipoli. Mavis and myself eventually married. We had our wedding reception in the park and, and also many sporting functions. And in later years, we thoroughly enjoyed with our children. And furthermore today, eventually it will be their children. Looking back to 1942 to today's and having seen the decline in, in recent years and I refer to the 1970s and 1980s when the park really, really needed uplift in many directions. And some of the locals eventually were strong enough to get together to form the Friends of Wattle Park group. As my wife would say, to you Wattle Park, we love you. With having worked the different things when I was doing it around about way, the work that one has done in the park, you know, like rebuilding trams and what have you. And when we had at value to get a, a more update tram that they had a few of the schools present when this tram was coming and, and it was coming up Riversdale Road and had the school kids on Riversdale Road watching this new tram on the trailer coming up Riversdale, coming up Riversdale and up the driveway and getting into the position.
and uh, and uh, it's, it's, but naturally we were there, Mavis and I, and we were watching. She was nursing one of the young girls, had two, three of her children, two of them were toddlers, and between Mavis and myself, we were nursing the baby, you know. And at the, when the tram, when it came up and they've got it in position, and, and just to see the look on those kiddies' faces, you know, and I just said to Mavis, you know, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Why, why we do things. So the park <clears throat> does rely on the friends of Wattle Park oh, to help out. We are the labour force. Another interesting facet <clears throat> regarding the the weeding, etc. Come December, they all after our meeting of a of a Saturday morning, which would involve in collecting seeds from the wattles or sometimes we may have a stray orchid or two which we dearly love to see. When we first took over as friends of the park also was primarily, which was a prime target on our list, was to do and rebuild the hothouse so that we could sort of uh, do our own transplanting from the seeds which, which was in the nursery, which for many years, particularly during the 1939-45 war, served by growing quite a lot of vegetables in that area. One felt a great deal of pleasure in working on such a worthy cause, because then we were doing our own seeding, and our own propagating, and thereby we were receiving greater pleasure and enjoyment. I love Wattle Park too. I love the old chalet and remember buying lollies and ice cream there after a solid afternoon's running riot in the park. I love the old trams in the playground and the old tennis courts. You feel like you've stepped back in time to the 20s and 30s, it's no surprise that much of the park is classified by the National Trust. Thank you for sharing your memories, Frank. Blue 
Blue Lake from Melbourne band The Orb Weavers, a track from their 2017 album Deep Leads, which sets the scene perfectly, I think, for our Melbourne by the Book segment with today's guest, David Sornig. Welcome, David. Thanks, Andy. David is a novelist as well as a non-fiction writer and currently teaching in the Creative Writing Program at the University of Melbourne. And he's also held a State Library Victoria Creative Fellowship. David joins us in the My Marvellous Melbourne studio to talk about his latest book, hot off the press, Blue Lake, Finding Dudley Flats and the West Melbourne Swamp, published by Scribe. Now, I know the West Melbourne Swamp, I guess, at a bit of a distance, David, as it were. I know that John Lack, of course, in the Encyclopedia of Melbourne, sketched a little bit of a chronology of it from Batman's Swamp, as it was, fed by uh, the Mooney Ponds Creek and the Yarra River when it flooded. And then there were various reclamation uh, and improvement works and this shanty town called Dudley Flats where many unemployed people lived during the Depression. Going right back to the 1840s, it had been described by George McRae as this amazing, uh, intensely blue oval lake that was full of uh, the clearest salt water. And then by the post-war period, we get it described by Hal Porter in his autobiography as a kind of no man's land. So in a way, I read your book as a journey and exploration of what happened in between those two bookends, if you like, this extraordinary environmentally rich habitat uh, and aesthetically wonderful place in the early period of Melbourne's settlement. And then by the post-war period, a kind of decrepit no-man's land that is a site actually of dysfunction and desertion and abandonment. So how did we miss it? And I guess to kick us off for our listeners particularly, where exactly is this place we're talking about? Well, the West Melbourne Swamp, uh, uh, well, the whole area that I call the zone in the book, is bounded to the north by Dynan Road, uh, to the south by the Port of Melbourne, to the west, the Maribyrnong River, and to the east, what we'd today call Docklands. Uh, so that whole area in between there, it's around a, an eight square kilometre zone that um, was once home to a, a large wetland and to the original course of the Yarra River as it, as it meandered up toward the north, the northwest, um, toward Footscray, which is where why we have the name Yarraville. Um, around that area because the area used to used to flow up to that part of the, the river that we call the Maribyrnong now. I'm going to pick you up on your use of the word zone there because it's, it's quite a, a critical organisational motif for the book. 
you kind of go looking for this place, Dudley Flats, and you you kind of go there and you can't find it. It's, as I said, forgotten, abandoned. It's one of these kind of moribund or blind spots in Melbourne's cartography. It's sort of fallen between the cracks. And to my mind, we, we get increasingly lost, in a sense, as the book goes on, and you end with this sort of quasi-apocalyptic section where you, you're kind of battling the zone and the sort of surveillance of the controlling forces. Tell us a bit about this uh, focus on the zone and that indeterminacy of the place that forces you to come up with some other kind of structuring device. Mm. So the the name the zone I've, I've pretty much uh, taken from Andre Tarkovsky's uh, 1979 film Stalker, which is about a, 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 a more or less an apocalyptic area um, that could be equated with something like Chernobyl, um, or you know, kind of predictive of, of Chernobyl, which is difficult to access, which might appear from the outside to be easily accessible, but 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 holds these kinds of these barriers, these boundaries that are that are impenetrable. And I thought it was a great metaphor for the for this area, this this large area that if you walk down there and try to explore it by foot and particularly by foot because we we mostly travel around the area by car if you do try to enter the area by foot and try to traverse it you, you you're faced with all sorts of all sorts of barriers all sorts of, of ways of not being able to make it from one geographically linked zone or area to the next so between the port of melbourne and the mooney ponds creek or the railway coal canal you can't easily access that access that um, from the mooney ponds creek to the north trying to head head south along that creek, you can't actually really traverse it um, because there are railway yards. Um, so all sorts of areas that are actually blocked off. And I, and I thought that that was a, an interesting metaphor So mm. to use Tarkovsky's idea of the zone to describe that. And it's a place in, in Melbourne, I mean, every place in Melbourne, any, every place in, in any kind of urban agglomeration, in a sense, is the is the palimpsest that, that's built up over time and overlaid and, and overstructured. But this, this, this is a place where there seems to be more intensity and rapidity of this kind of restructuring, both physical and symbolic. And I think you wait till nearly at page 300 before you give us a map. And by that point, it, to, to my mind, it doesn't really help. It, it sort of adds to the complexity and confusion. And I guess it's partly the partly the point of your book, these overlapping scales and, and nomenclatures that I think that speaks to the to the way that we really don't have a name for this area where we might have suburb names um, that you know unify particular geographical areas. We don't really have a name for it. So what what I was interested in tracking was the the way that it became broken up, laid over, and and descended. So the book. So you've mentioned that the the map doesn't come until much later, and that's very deliberate because there was very much a period during which it was abandoned, it was that blind spot, and fell into a kind of chaos um, or a, you know, a, an idea from the uh, a public idea of chaos. And so I was interested in tracking that journey from something unified as a wetland through this period of chaos where it was the ownership of various and the administration of various areas passed between and you know, between various authorities from the Harbour Trust to the railways to Melbourne City Council, uh, land, State Lands Department, these kinds of areas. And so who, who controlled parts of it wasn't exactly clear the entire time. So there was a kind of chaos that uh, emerged through that. But by the time you do get to the, the late 1930s, there's an attempt to impose 
order on that, and that's where I start bringing in the map. Mm. So jumping maybe from the 1840s a century ahead, how, how quickly does that idyllic, bucolic sort of blue lake of the early period, how quickly does that become dismantled and degenerated? It, it's quite quickly, certainly by... I think it's about 1842, there are a group of entrepreneurs who are wanting to build on the area, and but there is a, a, a minor depression in Victoria at that time and that their, their plans are defeated. But it's already described around that time as being uh, you know, overrun by cattle. Um, so the, you know, the the kind of ecological coherence of the area is starting to become disrupted very much and it's becoming a very muddy place, difficult to, to traverse. And uh, because it's a waterway, it starts to attract already in that sort of early period. Um, this is something John Lack writes about um, uh, as well. Uh, the noxious trades that start to encircle the boiling down works that are being fed from the you know the slaughter yards further to the north uh, went from being, I mean, identified on maps as swamp, through to you know Batman's Lagoon, Batman's Swamp. Um, the North Melbourne Swamp, there are references to, um, and the West Melbourne Swamp is kind of the name that it, it that becomes settled on, more or less over the next sort of hundred years. Did the word swamp always have the kind of negative connotations, if you like? I mean, when I think of looking at, often you'll look at 19th century depictions of cities where you've got chimneys with smoke billowing out of them, and we look at them now from the 21st century in terms of climate change and pollution, but in the 19th century, smoke billowing out of chimneys was a sign of industrial progress and so on. Hmm. Did the word swamp always have a negative connotation? It seems to. I can't say definitively whether it whether it did or not, but certainly it had that sense of uh, in this area at the time that you know there was it was low lying wetland, so it was it, it was something difficult. And I think there's definitely an association between swamp and and that kind of connotation. And I guess the the miasmic theories of disease causation prior to you know the 1880s, there was that kind of connotation that this was a unhealthy place. Absolutely, well. absolutely. And you know there are there are various accounts of that, um, particularly as it does become unhealthy because of the uh, the rubbish mm. uh, dumps that become cited there. A critical device in the book is a choice of. Uh, three particular characters who become, in a sense, our kind of guides to this place. Who are they? Why are they important? And, and perhaps, you know, why did you choose them? And how do they structure your approach to this place? Well, each of the three uh, were resident at around the Dudley Flat Shantytown, which was around from more or less 1930, so with the beginning of the Great Depression, and was a, was a settlement in some form until the late 1950s. And all three lived in the area uh, during that period. The first one, uh, or the earliest one living there, was uh, a German mariner named Lauda Rog, who lived on a schooner, a stranded schooner on the old course of the Yarra. And he had 60 dogs that he, he kept with him for... Uh, any number of years. And the next one that moved into the area was Jack Peacock. And uh, Peacock was a, a scrap trader. He lived off the pickings of the tip and it, it, more or less the quintessential kind of um, uh, Dudley Flat shanty dweller, uh, except that he was a, a teetotaler, which was which was uncommon for the uh, the people living in the area. And he lived there from the early 1930s 
all the way through until it was more or less reclaimed by the um, the establishment uh, of the markets in the area. He died just prior to that um, in 1958. So he lived there for, you know, for a good 25, 26, 27 years. And then the third person is Elsie Williams. Elsie is um, or was an Afro-Caribbean woman born in Bendigo. She claimed of American parents, but they were Jamaican, West Indian. And she had a career as a singer in the 1920s um, around Australia with a group called the Fisk Jubilee Singers. And But her life descended into alcoholism and some some pretty, uh, you know, pretty pretty intense violence as well. She lived on the uh, in various shanties and various shacks around Dudley Flats, probably from the about 1934-35 onwards until her death in 1942. These characters and the stories of these characters kind of come to a pointy end, obviously, with their demise, and in the same way that we don't get a map until quite late. We don't get images of these people till quite late, which I think is a wonderful way of, of structuring and building your narrative so we're, we're able to conjure our own uh, impressions and images of these people. Their stories are not just about this place. They're symbolic of a whole suite of changes in not just in Melbourne but I think sort of nationally through the late 19th into the 20th centuries in terms of r- attitudes to race, in terms of, of gender and domestic violence and, and public violence as well, issues around, you know, reproductive health in some cases and certainly attitudes to aliens. Um, so you, you're, you, there are multiple scales to this book. It's not just about a swamp, is it? It's, no, no, it's, no, no. It's, it's, that's the, the social part of this history, I think, that, you know, we get Lauda Rog, who was interned during World War One uh, in what was then called Concentration Camps Australia um, in Liverpool in New South Wales. Elsie married a British Guianese seaman in the 19, late nineteen in the late teens in the post World War One period, and he wouldn't have been allowed to remain in Australia as uh, as a black man, and so he disappears from the scene because of the White Australia policy. Mm. And Jack Peacock's wife, you know, she succumbed to possibly what was uh, with the after effects of an uh, illegal abortion, septicemia. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they are they are emblematic of the way lives were lived and lives were lived in a way, I think so in Jack Peacock's case, you know, there was a kind of a, a more rural sense within the cities uh, during that time. Well, they also live more locally. I mean, these people, in a sense, they're, they're known individuals, I mean, We'd often call them kind of colourful local characters, if you like, and and historically we can think of a lot of other people in the streets of Melbourne, people like Kalani Cash, who was a well-known street dweller. So there's kind of a a localness to them, but we we come across them and you come across them as a sort of investigator in those interactions with the state or with the authorities where often they're in trouble or they need some help or they're being observed or controlled, and that can tend to kind of exceptionalise, I think, some of the, the the negativities of that experience. But also, as a writer, it gives you the opportunity to more creatively try and fill out for the reader a sense of their individuality and their agency. How, how do you balance that, that sort of genre question of fact versus the boundaries of speculation and where mm. you need to take us into another another paddock, as mm. it were. Yeah, well, I, I, I traverse it. I think I, I try to be quite careful uh, in my approach to it and try to try to mark fairly clearly that, A, I 
um, am aware of the of the fact that this boundary is something that I am traversing, and secondly, that you know when I when I'm in there, I'm in there. Um, so I'll do things. Uh, so let's take Jack Peacock for example. I'm I'm really trying to reconstruct. Uh, the trajectory of his life, mostly through the, uh, particularly through the the, the 1930s, uh, through advertisements he placed in newspapers for selling his uh, the various wares that he he collected on the tip, and but trying to infer from that uh, aspects of his his daily life, there was you know he sold manure that uh, his he had a number of horses around there and he collected the manure and and took it off to market gardens in in various uh, sort of south southern suburbs or the southeast suburbs and so I can I, I imagine that he would have a kind of a, a daily routine or a weekly routine of doing this there's no no idea that he actually did have that uh, you know, I don't have that specific detail but you can you can infer from this and you, and you give us clues I think along the way you'll often say the romantic in me imagines dot 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 so there's a kind of a, mm. a care that you take when mm. you do lead the, the reader um, off, off track as it were and I also like the I mean there's an everydayness in trying to reconstruct individual lives and we learn a lot about you know we've got kids skinny dipping on St Kilda Beach in mm-hmm. 1901 we've got all the kind of horsey trade in Melbourne. Uh, we, we discover places like Kirk's Horse Bazaar, this place called Shelley Beach, which I've mm. never heard of. Well, Shelley Beach was a, a, a discovery. I uh, Well, I didn't discover it, but it was something that I, I came across when speaking to uh, a woman named Phyllis McIlvaney, who was present almost at the, at the time of Elsie's death. And in so Elsie, uh, sorry, that Phyllis often went with her friends from South Kensington down to play at the tip. And we again, this is one of the things we forget that there was a a continuous kind of uh, a connectedness. Uh, there weren't the boundaries then, heading all the way down to toward what is now Appleton Dock. And so that was accessible to the public, and the kids used to go down kids there used to, to play. Roam, roam around a lot more. That's than right. That. That's right. And so and so this is where this place Shelley Beach emerges. Um, and there are things like, you know, incidental stories about mushroom collecting as well in the area. And so, in the kind of uh, the late autumn, uh, people who lived at Dudley Flats would collect mushrooms and sell them at the um, uh, to various restaurants. And that's something that became foregrounded for me when I took a walk around the area in the late autumn one year, down around Appleton Dock, you know, without any authority, but finding a lot of mushrooms and realizing that, you know, this place is still very rich in this kind of you know, in, in mushrooms and you know they that but they don't get picked anymore. Mm. You mentioned talking to Phyllis McIlvandy, one of the girls who who finds Elsie in a dreadful state on the tip in the 1940s. You also uh, meet with Jack Peacock's grandson, and there's another intriguing part of the book is tying these threads of the present and the past, and in in a sense, sometimes it's sort of having to intervene in what uh, families already know. And how, mm. how do you? How does that make you kind of feel as a as a writer, as a kind of interloper into into uh, people's actual mm. lives? Um, well, with with Lindsay Peacock, it was actually it's been one of the most moving parts of the, the book, particularly afterwards. Now that it's been written and published, because um, Lindsay contacted me sort of a, a week afterwards uh, with a copy of the book and said that he had felt more connected to um, his own family because of it, because Jack Peacock was a missing part of his. Uh, family's history, and he felt he understood, you know, his own history, his own background, 
better and also felt a connection with his his own children. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Lindsay's son who looks uncannily like Jack. Uh, I met him last week and, you know, their, their sense of connection through you know, this story, um, which certainly delivered to them more of a story about their great-grandfather and, and, and grandfather uh, than they'd ever had, was, you know, incredibly, I found that incredibly moving. But that said, I describe in the book that, you know, they know Jack already through their own embodiedness in a way that I could never know. And, you know, they have small stories. They do that kind of a you know, they deliver stories like the one about Jack where he is, you know, riding a bull in uh, Lang Lang in, you know, the in the 1920s, um, doing these kinds of things. You know, these are – and these are the kind of stories that I'll, I'll go on ahead and acknowledge that I'm embellishing, but they're the kind of – the very particular details that, you know, you don't get from the public record. Mm. I'm sure people will, will have fun sort of pinning down the, the, the genre of your book. Do we call it psychogeography? I, I understand that to be a genre that's sort of very playful and exploratory – and it's a it's a mixture of this kind of subjective and objective, and I see it to varying degrees in other ones of my favourite Melbourne writers like Tony Birch and um, Arnold Zabel, even Robin Anier. Is that the kind of yeah? It, the psycho, ironically, the uh, the psychogeographers um, the, who would we'd think of having coined these kind of terms, or are certainly bring it into the um, contemporary literary scene, uh, don't like the term. Um, so people like Ian Sinclair will will disown it and. Um, there are people who now call it deep topography. Um, so it, it, it's a difficult genre to classify. Somebody said to me the other night that, you know, the, the librarians are going to have real difficulty with this book because, you know, it it, it ranges across biography and history and, you know. Um, and you, you were, were, you very, were you conscious of this as you were very, writing the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Cool. I didn't want to – I'd had – the option at the beginning because there was so much really rich material, particularly on on a character, you know, the characters like Elsie and and Jack in particular, I think, you know, as as a my first impulse is toward fiction, and the impulse to to write fiction out of this was was pretty strong, um, but. Because the material was so rich, I felt that I had to do it some kind of justice in uh, in in a nonfiction form, but in a way that could. You know, cross boundaries. I think that that was the the right thing for this book, and particularly because it's a it's a book about crossing boundaries and trying to find from disparate and disconnected parts what what the the totality of something might be and what it might you know an approximation of that. So I think it it does something of that. To round out the the story and the content, if you like, what happens what happens to Dudley Flats? So this is a uh, a place that particularly during the, the Great Depression becomes a, this sort of abandoned place where we meet uh, a number of your characters. What happens? Okay, so Dudley Flats you know, emerges as, as you know, this village of sorts, um, as you say, you know, in, the, in the early 1930s. Uh, it, it gains a kind of coherence and a stability um, right through the 1930s, um, so beyond the you know, sort of the peak years of the Depression. And uh, there are at times usually probably a population of 40 to 50 people living there. Sometimes there are claims made that people live, uh, there are as you know, many as 200 people living there, but that's probably unlikely. But right through the 1930s, that sort of stable population of 40 to 50 people is there. There are comings and goings. 
and a lot of the um, the economy of the uh, the settlement is based on uh, scavenging from tips. But people trying to make ends meet in their own way, in an ad hoc way, um, you know, with the resources that are available to them, um, when they're not able to work for you know, economic reasons or for you know, and ultimately, I guess, personal reasons. They the settlement you know, persists all the way through until in that really structured way until the early 1940s when the Second World War more or less takes uh, a lot of the materials that are uh, usually ending up on the tip and taking them out to salvage depots around the place. And that undermines the you know the economic stability of the settlement. And you have some images in the book. I mean, that interwar period is the period of the, you know, the slum reclamationists and so on. And there are some fascinating photos, aren't there, that mm. were taken through that period? Yeah, they are. Uh, so a lot of the photos of the actual shanties were taken by a social reformer named F. Oswald Barnett, who became a member of the um, uh, the Slum Abolition Board and was you know, kind of very, very instrumental in, you know, bringing to government awareness the problems, you know, the social problems that were associated with you know, the inner city suburbs, um, you know, the Collingwoods and the Carltons and Fitzroys and North Melbourne and the, you know, the, the kind of thing that was happening in North Melbourne around that time where there was a lot of industrial development over housing certainly contributed to the way Dudley Flats developed, so that local kind of aspect to it. But Barnett was, uh, you know, a, a key social reformer and keen, uh, a key in documenting what was going on in the area. And yeah, so he took the then premier, uh, Mr. Dunstan, uh, around the area on a tour with his ministers and took a, a you know a, a significant number of photos and they're the best photographic record I, I think we have of of the area and they, you know they're vital. How did you? Come to be interested in this. You're you're a, you're a Western Suburbs boy. I understand. I, originally, I was. So yeah, for the first half of my life, I've uh, I lived uh, in Sunshine. I grew up in Sunshine, and growing up in the West, you have a, a very clear sense that it's a place that's a little bit different to the rest of Melbourne. Certainly, it's um, you know its landscape, uh, its development is is you know, has a has a huge industrial base. You know, you have petrochemical plants. Um, you know great burning flames on the on the horizon um the Coot island fire um still today you're still getting um you know tire fires and factory fires out in the around the place you know which are quite significant and so you always have this sense that there is something different about the place and i was in i've always been you know at the back of my mind interested in in the idea of why it has this this kind of oddness to it mm-hmm. and that's very much linked with i describe in the book you know the memory of you know, getting the train around from well from Sunshine, but between Footscray and North Melbourne stations, um, the train takes this this long sort of arch around over the Maribyrnong and through this kind of industrial area that, to me, never quite seemed fixed in place. I never knew really what went on there, and it was probably 2014 that I first heard the name of Dudley Flats, and began to wander down there and and started connecting these two areas that they were geographically linked. So this area between, you know, around that 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 Footscray North Melbourne area and the, what was Dudley Flats, that these were somehow linked and that the entire area was shaped ultimately the reason that that uh, railway line goes around that that big bend is because of the shape of the original swamp and the lake that was there. 
you're probably the best person, I hope, to answer this question. So if, if people want to go there, mm. <laughs> in inverted commas, we can go there in, in imagination to a certain extent historically, is there anywhere people can actually go in Melbourne? What's the best place to get some kind of grip on on this remarkable place. Okay, if you go down what used to be called uh, Dudley Street uh, down uh, uh, into Docklands, so all the way down to what's now uh, called Rombarassi Senior Park, that's the entry point for me. Um, it's the most easily accessible. And from there, you can take a walk uh, north along uh, the path that runs along the railway coal canal, but as we would call it, the Mooney Ponds Creek. You can take across, you can cross over the, um, uh, the Footscray Road Bridge there and sort of find your way around the back paths there. Um, you can walk along the um, the bike path that, that heads across to Footscray or you can head south along some little back trails. You can have a look around there. That's probably the best way to have a look. Well, I'd suggest that as many people as possible with your book in hand to go down and, and, and check it out. Look, we're really thankful for you, David, for researching and writing the book and putting... Uh, the West Melbourne Swamp or whatever name we want to put to it on our mental maps of Melbourne. So thanks for exploring it with us today. Thanks for having me, Andy. They usually emerge in early November, and they're gone by the end of the year. Occasionally, I'll note in my diary the first day I hear their call. 28 November 1995. 22 November 2001. 9 November 2009. 27 November 2013. The explosive cacophony of the cicadas is part of Melbourne's Rite of Summer. As December breaks and with Christmas just round the corner, I always have those flashes of summers past, summers of childhood. Coming home from primary school on the last day of term, squeezing down the steep steps of the old green and gold MMTB bull-nosed bus and walking home through the heat and the dust haze of an already hot summer, carefully carrying three months' worth of old projects and craft work that's the fate of every school child to lug home on that last day of term. It didn't strike me at the time as at all incongruous 
as the sweat dripped off my nose, that the object I carried most carefully in my right hand was the most recent work of art, a Christmas snowman made of cotton wool stuck around a glass jar. That summer of our own childhood seems the hottest and the longest of all summers, and the cicadas always provided the musical score. Melbourne summers older still meant the railways going onto their summer timetable as the thermometer started its slow rise. And it was the green cicada, often known as the greengrocer, who would be the final harbinger of summer and of the hot north winds ahead. Newspaper nature columns often recorded news of the first cicada's call. From the middle of October, reports might come in from Surrey Hills, Malvern or Ringwood, but it would be unusual to hear them before Cup Day. Ferntree Gully and Belgrave were infested with cicadas by the first week of December 1913. Donald MacDonald, in his Argus Nature Notes and Queries column on Christmas Eve 1909, remarked that he'd heard the first cicada in his garden that week, but that up north they're heard much earlier, and that a record of their first appearance shows little variation. This year, the first was heard on October 17. In 1908, October 23. 1904, October 29. And 1901, October 18. In 1886, the cicadas were noted as being particularly numerous in Kew, Hawthorne, Richmond and Heidelberg, those well-vegetated suburbs that lay in the Yarra Rivers Valley. In 1909, however, even in the region of bricks and mortar, Asling Street, Brighton, with its rows of neat suburban villas punctuated by an occasional mansion, where most evenings were accompanied by the sound of many pianos and of upraised human voices, even here played host to the fairy fiddlers, each street tree hosting its own orchestra. Melbourne's central city parks and gardens were renowned as cicada havens. In 1913, a visitor could be excused for thinking that many jets of steam were being loosed from small pipes, so great was the commotion of the bush nightingales near the state offices in the Treasury Gardens. In the midst of the green of the Fitzroy Gardens in late November 1923, the cicada was tuning up, ready to drum out his shrill tune as soon as the sun warms up the leaves and distills that delightful bush scent of eucalypts for the city dweller to revel in. In the 1950s, when Hector Crawford's annual Music for the People program drew tens of thousands to open-air orchestral concerts in the Botanic Gardens, many an act of Rossini or a Mozart movement was almost ruined by the cicada chorus. If they were exceptionally loud in the city, it was probably a good indication of a really summery weekend. But if they were late, people started to worry if summer would ever come. The cicadas were still silent in the last weeks of November 1929, as Melbourne waited in cool anticipation for the days to warm up and the cicadas who headquartered in the plane trees on Flinders Street to start up their chorus. On the other hand, Sometimes during a Melbourne heatwave, it was a day so hot that even the cicadas couldn't be bothered singing. We never knew them as greengrocers when I was a kid, just cicadas. 
We harvested their crinkly brown carapaces from tree trunks so we could decorate our T-shirts with their macabre and clinging forms. There are many varieties across the country, from black princes, flowery bakers, brown bunyips and masked devils, to red eyes, cherry noses, double drummers, whiskey drinkers, golden emperors and yellow Mondays. But the greengrocer is the most familiar to Melburnians. The thrumming, drilling call of one of the loudest insects in the world, around 120 decibels if you're too close, is often commented on by visitors who've never quite heard anything like it. A frog with wings and a horrible voice is in my room, a scared girl new from England cried, rushing out to her mother in a suburban garden during a plague of cicadas in Melbourne in 1923. Georgiana McRae called them biz wizards in 1841. In 1854, young English emigrant Henry Edwards collected nearly a hundred species of hemiptera, cicadas, leafhoppers and aphids, in and around his property on the Merry Creek, about nine miles north of Melbourne. The most remarkable of the order homoptera was the cicada which exists, he wrote, in such numbers in this locality and creates such a tremendous noise as to be a complete pest. Its clear, membranous wings, when expanded, are about four inches in width. The head is very broad, eyes reddish, prominent. On a hot summer's day, these insects are so abundant and so incessant is their chirping, if it may be so called, that you are almost bewildered by the sound. In 1855, German visitor Lothar Becker commented on the shrill droning of the white cicadas and later described their deafening and horrid rasping. For over a century and a half, descriptions in Melbourne's press of the cicadas sound bear witness to a kind of a love-hate relationship that we seem to have with them, a literary language reflecting the seasons and mirroring our moods in what's called the pathetic fallacy the way that we project our own feelings and our own emotions onto the natural world. So the cicada's chirruping call is like comb and paper or artillery, watch spring whir or springing rattle, a whistle or a great orchestra. It is tin-lunged or shrilling, and as it builds and moves us, it becomes sultry cry or maddening song, joyous skirl or screeching protest, Weird twittering or rhythmic chant, happy drumming or deafening carol, strident challenge, stridulous rasping, jarring diatone, ceaseless droning. At different times, the cicada's call compares to other urban disruptions. The 1920s were an especially noisy time, it seems, in Melbourne. The noise abatement movement and the invention of the decibel combated a seemingly ever more mechanised and disruptive urban environment. So the cicada's sound in November in the 1920s was like the shrill, discordant bursts of jazz. C.J. Dennis bemoaned other contemporary urban ills in his cicada's ditty. Oh, cease, unholy flies, your frantic clamour. Stop, or my madly throbbing head will burst. Gone is my peace of mind, and gone the glamour of summer days. The heat is at its worst. My brain is numb behind an aching brow. Gosh, I am hot. Oh, stop that blooming row.
oh, stop it, cease. And yet I have a notion even your clamour will be drowned ere long, when it will sound to us mid new commotion, as to a lover sounds his lady's song. And we shall deem your drumming doubly sweet beside electric trams in Collins Street. More seriously, perhaps, other writers and poets took their qualities to heart. Nina Murdoch, born in North Carlton in 1890, one time journalist on the Sun News Pictorial and the Herald, and later to manage the Children's Corner on radio station 3LO, equated the experience of flying in the early 1920s with the airborne cicada. Now I know, at last I know, why the wild cicadas go hoarse with joy when skyward flying. Now I know, for I have flown in the aerial unknown. Robert Henderson Kroll, author of The Open Road in Victoria, was wonderfully philosophical in his cicada poem. Singing, I lived at peace with life, and singing still must now depart. Lost were the sounds of toil and strife in the wild music of my heart. There were more prosaic accounts of the cicada in everyday Melbourne life, This family notice from the Australasia newspaper, one of my favourites, when on a hot December day in 1934, maybe a bored social columnist excelled themselves with their lyrical description of a society wedding. Sunshine lay like a veil of silvery gold over the dark trees close to the porch of Christchurch, South Yarra, Melbourne, on December 6th and cicadas trilled their songs in the sunlit branches as Margaret Clemina Brudenell, elder daughter of Major General Sir Brudenell, and Lady White of Woodnagarak, Middle Creek, Victoria, entered the church with her father for her marriage to Theodore G., elder son of Mr and Mrs H. N. Beggs of Nareeb Nareeb, Glen Thompson, Victoria. For a moment in the interwar years, it even seemed that a new shade had been added to Melbourne's colour palette for ladies' dresses at the bridge parties, weddings, at-homes and balls in Hawthorne, Kew and St Kilda, as social columns described frocks of cicada green taffeta, ripple crepe, organdy and silk. The cicada could also be the name of a ketch or a horse or a maternity home in Croydon, or a metaphor for someone making a noise disproportionate to their size, maybe a pompous politician in the Spring Street Parliament. Maybe you can drop us a line at My Marvellous Melbourne when you hear your first cicada this coming summer. Naturalist Nuri Mass, who introduced us to the frog in a previous Creature Feature segment, can have the last word. Her description of the kindly cicada was not only a guide to nature, but a parable for life. This looks like the sort of thing you wouldn't like to meet in the dark, she suggested. Perhaps you wouldn't like to meet him at all. But when the nymph grows up, he's actually very handsome. The youngster will one day become long-winged, loudly singing, summer-loving. How much, I remember, we all wanted to grow up into such a creature.
My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources, and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.